Today we continue our series on 1 Peter, and we've only said a couple of things here so far. We just introduced it, and um, uh, without getting too far down the road, we just said this, when faith gets difficult, most of us are tempted to walk away, but the book of 1 Peter tells us that when faith, faith, not just life, when faith, when it gets difficult to believe, 1 Peter tells us that when that gets difficult, we can still stand firm. Last week, we looked at one particular proverb that summed up in many ways the message, and that was this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, I don't know uh, where you are today. I know that all of us, to some degree, have great things going on in our lives that we're very excited about. I talked to my son just yesterday. Uh, we did not get a chance to do uh, lunch on Friday, so we did it on on Saturday, and so he has one particular restaurant he wants to go every time. It's Panda Express. That is the restaurant for him, and so I get the orange chicken, and I, I am so sensitive that regardless of the level of spice that's in something, my nose is going to run like a faucet. I'm going to cry because I just can't handle hot things, and I don't mean temperature. I just mean anything with any spice. So the orange chicken is, is what I get because I like punishing myself in there. And over here, I just said, son, what are you excited about in life? And he rolls off just, a, he has some things. And, and, and I would agree, but when he got finished explaining, I went, yeah, I'm excited too about it. And so what brings you fear and anxiety right now? What is it that really bums you out? And he thought a little bit longer about that, and he mentioned a few things, and, and I was bummed hearing it. All of us have things in our lives that it's a both and. Very few of us in the room right now would say, 100% of my life is so rosy and peachy, I just can't think of anything that is even remotely negative. Most of us also would not be able to say as well that there is nothing positive anywhere in life whatsoever. And I know that many of us will struggle with depression. It's very hard to actually see. There's chemical things in our brains that make it very, very difficult for us to see the good that is around us. And so on the one level, just telling someone who's depressed, hey, by the way, just look around all the good things, good luck. It's a little more difficult than that. But I will say this. When I look around and I just see you, I mean it when I say this. I say, God, thanks. There is a lot of good things that are happening in your lives. And I get a chance to hear about it. I get a chance to hear about the challenges as well. Just in this last week, I had an opportunity to um, spend some time with uh, uh, individuals who are coming up on the end of their marriage. I had an opportunity to spend some time with a man who's coming up on the end of his life. Had an opportunity to talk with a parent whose adult child is yet again um, going through another form of rehab. Had an opportunity to talk with a teacher who has a child in that particular classroom, one of their, their classes that they uh, teach in, in which uh, she is convinced um, that this child is regularly and consistently being abused at home. At the same token, I had a chance to talk with another couple who collectively, when I sat down and met with them, shared what it is, the radical turnaround that God has done in their lives and that they were headed towards the termination of their marriage before God stepped in in time and space and so radically transformed each of their hearts that they could barely even, tears, that could not get through the explanation of all that God had done. I talked with another teacher 
who had seen a student make a significant turnaround specifically in the subject of math. If you don't like math, you know how much of a miracle that is in the lives of some kids. Radical turnaround. Had an opportunity to talk to one particular kid who said, I finally have a friend. It's all around us. And so here's the question. When we think about 1 Peter, when we think about the author 2,000 years ago who put down on paper how it is that we are called by God to live, to function in a world that is going to be difficult. And it's going to be difficult. Jesus gave us the promise. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. And then he would tell us, by the way, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to give you everything that's necessary. What's going to happen is, while my physical presence will go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's going to be better for you that I send the Holy Spirit than if I were to stay right here. Because if I stay here, the Holy Spirit's not coming to you. So the Holy Spirit is actually going to bring to you my mindset, my ears, my mouth, all the ways in which I have lived. He's going to bring to you the ability to live like me. So now, two words. In your Christian pilgrimage, I'm going to general statement, in your Christian pilgrimage, do you want to mostly survive or do you want to mostly thrive? Now, I recognize there's going to be some times in life for those we will walk with God as intimately as as we can and, and we're only going to survive. There are moments in life that are like that. I wonder if God has called us more often to thrive and we can only think about survive. What would it look like for us to thrive in a spiritual pilgrimage when life is hard? Please hear this. I'm not talking about faking it. That's for the birds. It's not worth it to try to fake it. To white-knuckle Christianity, that that is not worth it. It's not the vision that God has in mind and in store for us. I'm talking about today, I do think that Peter's going to talk to us about what it looks like to thrive in our spiritual pilgrimage when we are living in circumstances, in a world um, that that is difficult, when, when we are experiencing trials and suffering, how do we thrive? So wrap your minds around this. Here's big picture. In this section which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. That's one section that we have right there. There are four commands. Four imperatives is what we call them. These four are how we've outlined this, uh, this outline today. It's not the only way that we could do it, but it is the way that uh, we could do it. I want to give you a statement, and I want to read the passage of Scripture. For many of us, things that we hope for in this particular life that we are in control of, hopes and dreams, et cetera, all that. Many of those we talked about last week are going to be a dying hope. A dying hope is a passive hope, meaning this, we are waiting for things to happen, to go our way, to catch a break. A dying hope is a passive hope. A living hope, which is what Peter is talking about, is an active hope. And he's going to give us four ways to be active today. I want to beg you, pay attention. I will do my best to make it as interesting as I can, but I am a very limited communicator. Trust God's word and even trust some hack 
who can preach and teach accurately God's word. If you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read beginning in verses 13 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Here's what he says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You may be seated. I honestly thought about devoting one entire sermon to just the first couple of words here in this section. Therefore. Now, we've said it before. You've heard it before. It's not trite. It's actually helpful for us to hear. Anytime you see the word therefore or wherefore in the scriptures, go back and see what it's there for. When he says therefore, he's making a transition from all that he had spoken about before. Now, what had he spoken about before? 50 cent term for you. They are indicatives. They are things that are true, things about God. We spoke about them last week. All that God has done on our behalf. These are the things that we cannot change. We can ignore them. We can teach against them. We can run a campaign against them. It doesn't matter. It's true because God is true. So in light of everything that is true is what he said. All of the truth that we talked about. In light of all that, therefore. Since this is the case, now turn your attention. Now Paul, when he writes, typically does the reverse order. Paul typically gives you all the things that we must do, and then he comes back around and he tells us what is true. Not always, but typically that's what Paul does. Peter does the opposite. He tells us what's true, and then he tells us what to do. Indicatives and imperatives. What is true, what to do. Therefore, Peter says. Can I read you something that's very important? It's a great quote. Thomas Schreiner, who's a fantastic theologian, uh, I think he puts it very, very well. He says this, God's commands are always rooted in grace. 
Another way of putting this is to say that the indicative, what God has done for us, is always the basis of the imperative, how we should live our lives. To confuse the order here would be disastrous. And the result would be works, righteousness, instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power, as a response to the love of God and grace. Do you hear that? In our lives. Whether we do the order that Paul does or Peter does makes no difference because they both are saying the same thing. Our holy life, an obedient life, is only going to be the result of what God has done and is doing in us. Today, if you have any notions that you are capable of carrying out all that God has asked you to do, if you believe that if you work a little bit harder, pray a little bit longer, go to church a little bit more, take a few more notes, think a little bit more diligently, if you think you possess the ability to live out a God-honoring, God-fearing life, can I put a word on you? It's, it's going to be offensive. Ready? Right. Then you are an antichrist. Don't think end times, revelation, boogeyman, world going. Don't think that, meaning you are against Jesus. And Christianity is about Jesus. So to try to walk the Christian faith and Christian life without being empowered by Jesus is utterly absurd. It's ludicrous. There's plenty of other religions to go to. Plenty of other religions say, if you just come here and work hard, you can earn the favor of God. What we believe that Christianity, the Bible teaches, God grants us his favor through the person of Jesus, and then we can live out a life that pleases him. In light of all that is true, here is what to do. The first command that he gives us comes here in verse 13, and it is to set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. That is the main verb uh, that, he, that he puts in here. What does it mean for us to set our hope fully upon what is going to happen uh, in the future? Uh, Christians should always have a future tense living. We should always have in mind what is to come and live in light of what is to come. Now, we illustrated this last week, and so I'm not going to do a, um, a tremendous amount of it before, um, but, but I think it would be uh, true. Um, how foolish would it be if we were to have a temporary home? You know what? In fact, my, my uh, mother-in-law is doing this right now. Judith spent some time in, uh, in um, Atlanta yesterday with one of our sons, um, and she went over to Rome to go see her mom. Her mom is making this brand new kitchen. It's a little expansion going on, new stuff that's coming in. Never before been updated. I think that refrigerator is as old as her. It's a great kitchen, love, marvelous human being, such a godly woman. She has been content just to have this kitchen. It's the same thing. They're renovating it now. How, how absurd would it be for her then to say, you know what? Because of all the construction that's going on, because of everything we got to do, we're going to move out for just a little bit and, and move out for just a short period of time so that they can finish. How absurd would it be to then treat this short, maybe two-week, maybe one-month temporary home 
How foolish would it be to treat it as if it's your permanent home, bring in all of the pictures, redecorate everything, paint the walls, spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to renovate this little temporary. How foolish and absurd would it be to do that? Knowing that you've got this other one, that's, this is where you're going to reside. For us, what is to come in the future, set our minds on what is to come into the future. Why? Because this is going to give us an indication of how God wants us to do this. How does God want you to live currently right now? Well, he's got the blueprint. And it's heaven. This is how we are called to interact with the world that is around us, to treat them. In the same exact way that Jesus would treat, set your hope fully on the future. Now, how does someone set their hope fully on the future? The mistake that we would make is if we were to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to set my hope fully on. I'm going to set my hope fully. I'm going to hope. I'm going to hope. I'm going to set my hope. Lord, help me set my hope. That, That would be the wrong thing to do. We don't set our hope on it first. We don't Again, white knuckle it there. What he's going to say, uh, how about this? When was the last time you had to tell your kids, especially when they were younger, hey, uh, get excited about Christmas? And say, son, I want you for the next 30 days, I want you to sit down and discipline yourself to get excited about Christmas. Now, I know you don't want to, uh, but. But think on it. Dwell on it. I want you to, to look up things. We had the old uh, service merchandise catalog that we would go through. I don't know if you had service merchandise here. And, I had, and we would go through it. You'd earmark it. You'd tab it. And so my brother had a color. That was his uh, page. And I had a color. That was my page. You don't have to, to force kids to get excited about Christmas. Why? Because Christmas is awesome. And when you're a kid, it's the greatest thing in the world. And January 1 to December 31, might as well have been 30 years. What you don't do is to try to get a kid to get, what, you just, you just open it up and let the kid go to town. What do we do to set our hope fully on, the, on what is to come? We get exposed, uh, we, we think, we dwell, um, uh, but we're not going to force ourselves into hoping there. How does one set his or hope on the future? He tells us right here in the verses and in, in, the, in the first section of this. Therefore, and then he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. These are the two ways that we set our hope fully on the graces to be given to us. What does it mean to prepare your minds for action? This is a term that... Um, uh, we, it's almost lost on us in today's day and age. The term actually means gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up your loins would be something very familiar to the folks in this day and age. They would oftentimes wear these longer gowns that would require them to be brought up or tied up. They would have a belt oftentimes that would do it. And so they would take the bottom of this and they would bring it up and they would stuff it into a belt so that their feet were free so that they might run, move forward, do, do something that's difficult, etc. 
They are girding up their loins in order that they can continue to walk or run, but do it in such a manner not to fall flat on their face. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get prepared for action. Get ready. Think. Dwell. About what? About all that God has said is coming. Get familiar with what the perfect life will look like. When we set our minds to think on that, when we're thinking about Christmas, it is going to set a hope inside of us that looks forward to what is to come. Prepare your minds. It means this. We are to have a disciplined mind, yet the discipline won't produce the hope. The discipline puts us in a position to dwell upon what it is that God is going to do, is doing, etc. And then our hope will naturally get set upon that. So take a disciplined approach, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, and he says, be sober-minded. Now, what does this statement mean? The same term is used uh, to not get drunk, but I don't think that's what he's literally referring to here. Yep, that's good advice. Good counsel. It's a command. Other places say that in there. Don't be drunk with wine or strong drink, but be filled with the Spirit. What he's referring to here, though, um, I really believe, is that we should have a careful examination of the realities of life. Jesus would say it this way. Don't be surprised. Uh, Do you, from time to time, uh, have this thought in your mind? Do you verbalize it out loud? I can't believe she... Can you believe he... Yeah, and I would be doing the exact same thing, but by the grace of God. I don't care how dark or sinister it is. There ought to be nothing that actually shocks us, surprises us. Yeah, that's fine. Nothing should shock us. Why? Because the flesh is that bad off. The the effects of the fall on the world are, are devastating. The devil is real, and he has utter destruction in mind. Think soberly set our minds be disciplined about the future but think soberly about the realities of life that is here don't get surprised when temptation comes learn how to see temptation set your hope fully and the grace that is to be given you do this by preparing your minds by girding up the loins of your mind and by being sober-minded by carefully considering the realities of life Can I, one last thing about that setting our hope fully on it means this, um, that, that we will naturally resist the temptation to be lulled into thinking that this life is our best life. I'm not taking a shot at any preacher. I am taking a shot at a concept. Your best life is not and will not ever be now. It is to come. And yes, I think God calls us to thrive right now, not just merely to survive all the time, but to thrive in life. But your best life is to come. Think, don't be lulled into thinking this has everything that your soul is longing for. You're going to experience disappointment. And in that disappointment, God is going to meet you. The second command that he gives, the second imperative, comes in verses 14 um, 15 and 16, but the, the one command is this, to be holy. As obedient children, he says this, don't be conformed. Don't passively be conformed to all the ways that we used to live before we came to faith in Christ. Sin will happen accidentally. 
You don't have to intentionally set out to sin. You don't have to say, you know, today I really would prefer to do righteous things, but I got to work hard on this sin thing. I'm really going to think about how I can wreck someone's day today. How can I carefully and methodically map that out? You don't have to do that. It comes naturally to all of us. Now, we get better at hiding it as we get older, but our kids don't hide it very well, do they? They come out of the womb, sinful creatures, wonderful, delightful, um, enjoyable. Our love is cast on them, not because of what they do or don't do. It's because they are. Uh, but man, those little critters are, are deceptive and manipulative and, uh, and all the things that come along with it. Now, again, I get better manners as I get older, but my flesh has not gotten any better. So he says, don't passively just be conformed to all the ways of, of the past. Don't just regularly give in to your hate. Don't, don't give in to, to, to your lack of love. Don't give in to gossip. Don't give in to manipulation. Fight it. If you don't fight it, if I don't fight it, we will wreck people. I think all of us who have had children would say this. Just ask our kids. There have been so many things over the years that I have thought, I cannot believe I did that. I wasn't sober-minded. I didn't think about temptation. I didn't set my hope fully on the grace that is to be given. I just let myself do what I will naturally do. I wasn't prepared. And all along, God's saying, I got the power for you. I got the grace for you. I got the life for you. Don't be passively conformed. Instead, do actively pursue holiness, verses 15 and 16. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is consistent with the character of God, is what he says. Since you are obedient children, since we carry the same last name, since we're image bearers, since we bear the name of Christ, he says, act like you belong to Christ. Now again, is he saying, just go work harder? No, what he's saying is think about all that is to come. Think about all the ways that Christ can overcome the sin in you. Offer the members of your body over to him. He can look awfully good in your skin or you can look awfully miserable in your own. Calling here does not simply mean that we are invited to holiness. It means that we are demanded into it. God's holiness is the motive. It is also the model. Can I point out to you one thing, though? In this passage, he's quoting a passage in Leviticus, but in here, it is true for the New Testament people as well as the Old Testament people. Here, I want you to see that uh, uh, the first call for God's people is to be holy. The second call for God's people is to then bless the world. Remember, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. My glory is going to go all over the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. We are called to bless the world. Yes, absolutely. We are first called to be holy. Can God use impure vessels? Uh, every single one who has ever been used is an impure vessel with the exception of Jesus. Of course, God can use impure vessels. 
So this notion of if we're not holy, God's not going to use us is hogwash. But we're called to be holy, then to bless the world. Verses 17, he adds uh, to this, and he says uh, to be respectful in two directions. The first one is towards God. It is he who calls us to be holy. It is we who call on him for help to it. Now notice that he says here that he's this impartial judge. We should have a reverent fear, a holy awe and respect of God because he does carry the ability to bring about judgment for all of eternity against us. But notice what Peter says here though. He says, it's an impartial judge who is your father. That's the connection. Peter says, should we fear him? Yeah, because he hates sin. But no, he's your father. He loves you. He loves his children. He will discipline his children. Uh, 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 he will form and fashion. Um, he hates sin, but he loves his kids. So be respectful all towards God. Be respectful towards Christ. In verses 18 through 21, he talks about all that Jesus did. And I just want to point out just a few things here as I think he's looking back towards this, the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, I think, first of all, he's looking and he's telling us in here that we were, uh, uh, as a people, in bondage to sin as the Old Testament Israel was in bondage to the nation of Egypt. We were in bondage. The only way to get out of bondage was for there to be a price that would be paid. There was a ransom for the people that had to be paid. And here he says, it's not a ransom with gold or silver. It's not money that is bought in here. What it is, is we are paid by the blood of Jesus, meaning this. Would you consider how costly the sacrifice is for Jesus? Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, we are called by Paul in there. Jesus tells us every time you eat or drink this, uh, 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 think about me. But Paul tells us to, to carefully consider. There are times in which we take communion. I just may have the, the, the wine or, or juice in my mouth. It's what I'm just I'm trying to think. No, Lord, this is not blood in my mouth. I know it's wine or juice in there. Um, but I do want you to help me dwell upon what it is that you actually gave up. I don't want it to be just milk and cookies. Have respect for all that Christ has given up. I have so much respect for so many athletes who give up so many things to become the athletes that they are. And I mean sincere respect. They give up some things. There's no way I'm giving that up. I ain't giving up my ice cream. They give it up so they can perform at a higher level. Jesus gave up his very life. Verses 22 comes the third of the commands, and it is to love one another. He says that we are to love one another earnestly, which means exactly or diligently or carefully. I don't have time to flesh this out for us, but I would love for you to dwell on this particular thought. What does it look like for you to love the church carefully? Handle with care. How do we love one another? I, please hear this. Okay, please hear this. Peter does not say, like the church. Some of you don't like each other. 
Some of you don't like me. It's okay. You're not called to like each other. You're called to love one another. Have you ever had a moment with a friend, a dear friend, coworker, somebody that you know, that you've known for a long time? Have you ever had a moment where you did not like them, but you loved them? Right now, I got a bunch of wives going. Love one another exactly, diligently, carefully. This is where we close, and it's just two things to draw your attention to. This is amazing. He now gets into a section 23 through 25 that serves as a bridge in between these two commands. To love one another and then to long for the milk. This is the bridge. It comes in 23 to 25. He basically says, trust the word. What does he say about the word? At the end of the day, there are many things that are going to go away. The grass is going to wither. The flower is going to fade. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. He puts this little parenthesis in here. He says the word, trust the word. Trust the word. Nothing is more attacked than the word of God. Because this is our only rule of faith and practice. This is ultimate truth and reality. This is thus saith the Lord. This is what God had designed for you and me, for us to hear, to dwell on, to meditate on, to live by. Preaching is good only insofar as it preaches what is accurately here. And you will hear me pray regularly. Lord, if there's anything that I have spoken today that is not consistent with your word, cause it to flee from our minds. Trust the word. Are you in the word? Are you consuming it? Are you eating it? Are you diving into it? Are you meditating on it? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you, are you asking, God, would you bury it within my heart? Are you guided by it? Or do we have an approach that says, you know, by and large, it's a good book. It's, there's some fantastic things in there but it hasn't really kept up with the 2000s. Because there's some issues of our day that the Bible is really behind on. And so we need to adjust this thing in order to match and to fit our culture. That is a recipe for death. Death of the soul. Death of a society. Trust the word. Can I say it this way? You don't have to like the word. There are several things in here that I don't like. And if I were God, I would not have put it in there. But to no one's surprise, I'm not God. And so I have to be faithful to teach. I have to be faithful to believe. I have to be faithful to put into practice. Whatever it is that he says, and no matter how difficult it may seem, remember Jesus says, I'm with you. I'll enable you. Finally, in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he says, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. That's the same way of him saying, 
don't be passively conformed to the, to the former ways. He's just fleshing it out a little bit. He says, uh, he says what we should do uh, actively. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for milk. Now, what he's not doing is making the comparison that Paul made in another section where Paul is saying, hey, you've got the elemental things, the basic things, but you really need to move on to the more meaty things. He is not saying that in this context. He is actually drawing our attention to something different. He's saying, like newborn babes crave the milk. How does a newborn babe crave the milk? Uh, if, uh, if you're not aware of this, uh, when babies get hungry, they're not exactly nice. They're going to let you know they are hungry. And they're going to let you know in no uncertain terms. Feed me! Now they do it with one sound. And it will go on until you feed them. Like newborn babes crave the word. Ask God to burn this desire inside of you. God, give me a heart for your word. I want to long for that milk. I want to demand that I get it. I want to demand that my teachers at church teach the word. I want to demand that we as a family get into the word. I want to demand from my own schedule and demand of myself that I get into the word. Like newborn babes crave it, long for it. Now he notices he used another term, but he says it's pure. The unadulterated milk that comes to a baby is so healthy. It, it, there are nutrients in there that we can't mimic. Science has yet to kept, catch up with what God has done. It is pure. It is unadulterated. Let me just say it this way again. Preaching can be, thus saith the Lord, but it is not always necessarily, thus saith the Lord, even from very good faithful preachers. So you, my friend, Go to it. Read it. Study it. And the same Holy Spirit that put the words in the hearts and the minds of those who penned it, that same Spirit who understands the word far more intimately than you ever will, that Holy Spirit will guide and teach you. Not all things will be equally clear to you, but everything that is necessary will be clear. So my challenge to us today just simply is this. If we want to live a life that is not just going to merely survive these challenges, struggles, sufferings, trials that we go through, if we want to thrive in life, would you begin to think on what the life to come will be like when Jesus returns? Dwell on it. Become so heavenly minded that you will be a whole lot of earthly good. Pursue holiness, and in particular, pursue holiness in the little things in life. Say no to the little temptations. Say yes to the little acts of righteousness. Love one another. And get into the Word. Verse 3 says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, have you tasted? 
Have you tasted the Lord or have you just merely tasted another religion and slapped Christianity on it? Give up hope in yourself. Give up believing that you can somehow make yourself approved before God. Throw yourself at the mercy seat of Jesus and you will taste how good he is. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have extended to us. Lord, I pray that we here at Wildwood, we would be a people that whose lives are marked by these things. Um, would you set our hearts, set our hope on that which is to come? Father, would you put inside of us a longing to be a holy people belonging to you? Father, would you help us to love one another? Father, we believe um, that you did all these things, Jesus, perfectly, but we believe that if you enable us to do these things, um, um, we will reflect you well. So Lord, put the burning desire in our hearts to never let the, the, the book of the law depart from our mouths, but meditating on it day and night so that we might be able to put everything into practice you're asking us to do and then experience prosperity and success as you define it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.